Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Chapter 7 The Struggles and Success of Workers at Tuskegee. 1882-1884, Part 2. In 1883, Mr. Warren Logan, a graduate of the Hampton Institute, who had received special training in bookkeeping under General Marshall at Hampton, came to Tuskegee as a teacher. He had not been here long, however, before it was clearly seen that he could serve the school effectively in another capacity, as well as a classroom teacher, and he was soon given the position of treasurer and bookkeeper, in addition to his duties as an instructor. Mr. Logan has now been connected with the school 16 years and has been its treasurer during 13 years of this time. In addition to the position of treasurer, he fills the position of acting principal in the absence of the principal. All of these various and delicate as well as responsible duties he has performed with great ability and satisfaction. Mr. J. H. Washington, my brother, came to the school from West Virginia in 1885 and took the position of business agent. He was afterwards made superintendent of industries and has held that position ever since. In the meantime, the school has grown, and his duties as well as those of Mr. Logan have broadened and increased in responsibility. Both he and Mr. Logan, during the absence of the principal, are in a large measure the mainstay and dependence of the institution for counsel and wise direction. These two men, Mr. Logan and my brother John, have been from the beginning very important forces in the school management. As treasurer and superintendent of industry respectively, their responsibilities are heavy, and how much credit they deserve will never be fully known till the necessity arises some day to fill their places. They, with James N. Calloway, a graduate of Fisk University, who is the manager of Marshall Farm, Mr. G. W. Carver, director of the Agricultural Department, and Mr. M. T. Driver, business agent, constitute the finance committee of the Institute, a sort of cabinet for the principal. In September 1883, a very pleasant surprise came to the workers in the form of $1,100 secured through Reverend R. C. Bedford, from the trustees of the Slater Fund. I might add right here that the interest of the trustees of the Slater Fund, now under the control of Dr. J. L. M. Curry, special agent, has continued from that time until this, so that the institution now receives $11,000 from the Slater Fund instead of the 1100 at the beginning. With this impetus, a carpenter shop was built and started a windmill set up to pump water into the school building, a sewing machine bought for the girls' industrial room, mules and wagons for the farm, and the farm manager's salary was also paid for nine months. All during the summer, as was true of the previous one, Miss Davidson and myself had been earnestly presenting our cause at the North with so much encouragement that the work on the new building called Alabama Hall was vigorously pushed during the fall and winter. In February 1884, about three years after the school was opened, 
$5,000 had been secured towards the erection of Alabama Hall, which eventually cost about $10,000. In March 1884, General Armstrong did one of those generous things which he was noted for all through his life. In fact, from the beginning of Tuskegee's life until General Armstrong's death, he seemed to take as much interest in the work of Tuskegee as in the Hampton Institute, and I am glad to say the same generous spirit is constantly shown by the successor of General Armstrong, Dr. Frizzle. I received a letter from General Armstrong stating that he had decided to hold a number of public meetings in such cities as Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, and wished me to accompany him and speak in the interest of Tuskegee. These meetings were advertised to be in the interest of Hampton and Tuskegee jointly, but in reality they turned out to be meetings in the interest of Tuskegee. So generous was General Armstrong in his words and actions at these meetings. The special object aimed at in these meetings was to secure money with which to complete Alabama Hall. I quote from an address made at one of these meetings by myself. Our young men have already made two kilns of bricks and will make all required for the needed building, Alabama Hall. From the first we have carried out the plans at Tuskegee of asking help for nothing that we could do for ourselves. Nothing has been brought that the students can produce. The boys have done the painting, made the bricks, the chairs, tables, and desks, have built a stable, and are now moving the carpenter shop. The girls do the entire housekeeping, including the washing, iron, and mending of the boys' clothing. Besides, they make garments to sell and give some attention to flower gardening. In due time, however, by hard work, the remainder of the money, $10,000 in all, necessary to complete Alabama Hall, was secured largely in the North, although not a little was gotten from friends in and about Tuskegee, especially through the holding of festivals and other entertainments. In April 1884, we received a visit from the lady principal of the Hampton Institute, Miss Mary F. Mackey who was the first one to receive me when I went to Hampton as a student. I will say here that, from the visit of General Marshall up to the present time, we have received constant visits and encouragement from the officers and teachers of the Hampton Institute. Miss Mackey, writing to a friend at Hampton, said, The wish constantly on my lips, or in my heart, since I reached here last evening, is that you could see this school. I am sure you would feel, as I do, that the dial of time must have turned back twelve years in its course. In many respects, it is more like the Hampton I first knew than the one of today is. I was particularly struck with the plantation melodies which Mr. Washington called for at the close of the evening prayers. There is more of the real wail in their music than I ever heard elsewhere. The teachers here laugh over their exact imitation of the alma mater. Even the night school feature has sprouted. To be sure, it only numbers two students, but it is on the same plan as ours. Do you know that Mr. Blank Blank has lately given them 440 acres of land, making their farm now 580 acres? The June number of the Southern Letter, a little paper published by the Institute, contained the following account of commencement, 
which took place May 29, 1884. Many visitors were present, white and colored. The great interest was in the development of the Department of Industrial Training, which now includes the farm, the Slater Carpenter Shop and Blacksmith Shop, the printing office, the girls' industrial room, and the brickyard, where the students were making brick for Alabama Hall. The morning exercises were, as usual, inspection, resuscitations, and review of the current news. The speaker of the afternoon was Professor R. T. Green of Washington, who delivered a very practical and eloquent address. Reporters were present from Montgomery and Tuskegee. In the spring of 1884, I was very pleasantly surprised to receive an invitation from the president of the National Educational Association, Honorable Thos W. Bicknall of Boston, asking me to deliver an address before the body at its next meeting during the summer. The association assembled at Madison, Wisconsin, and I think I am safe in saying that there were at least 5,000 teachers present, representing every portion of the United States. This was the first opportunity I had had of presenting the work of the school to any large audience, especially of a national character. It was rather late in the evening before my time to speak came. Several speakers had preceded me, and one especially had proven himself to be rather tedious and tiresome by his long and rather unprepared address, but this did not discourage me. I determined to make the best address that I possibly could, although I was beset by fear and trembling. The many kind words, however, which I received after my address assured me that in some measure my effort had not been a failure. Among other things, I said, I repeat that any work looking toward the permanent improvement of the Negro in the South must have for one of its aims the fitting of him to live friendly and peaceably with his white neighbors, both socially and politically. In spite of all talk of exodus, the Negro's home is permanently in the South, for, coming to the bread and meat side of the question, the white man needs the Negro and the Negro needs the white man. His home being permanently in the South, it is our duty to help him prepare himself to live there, an independent, educated citizen. In order that there may be the broadest development of the colored man, and that he may have an unbounded field in which to labor, the two races, South, must be brought to have faith in each other. The teachings of the Negro, in various ways, for the last twenty years, have tended too much to array him against his white brother, rather than to put the races in cooperation with each other. Thus, Massachusetts supports the Republican Party because the Republican Party supports Massachusetts with a protective tariff. But the Negro supports the Republican Party simply because Massachusetts does. When the colored man is educated up to the point of seeing that Alabama and Massachusetts are a long way apart, that the conditions of life in them are very different, and that if free trade enables my white brothers across the street to buy his plows at a cheaper rate, it will enable me to do the same. He will act in a different way. More than once I have noticed that when the whites were in favor of prohibition, the blacks, led even by sober, upright ministers, voted against prohibition. 
simply because the whites were in favor of it. And for this reason, the blacks said that they knew it was a democratic trick. If the whites vote to lay a tax to build a schoolhouse, it is a signal for the blacks to oppose the measure simply because the whites favor it. I venture the assertion that the sooner the colored man, South, learns that one political party is not composed altogether of angels and the other altogether of devils, and that all his enemies do not live in his own town or neighborhood, and all his friends in some other distant section of the country, the sooner will his educational advantages be enhanced many-fold. But matters are gradually changing in this respect. The black man is beginning to find out that there are those even among the southern whites who desire his elevation. The Negro's new faith in the white man is being reciprocated in proportion as the Negro is rightly educated. The white brother is beginning to learn by degrees that all Negroes are not liars and chicken thieves. Now in regards to what I have said about the relations of the two races, there should be no unmanly cowering or stooping to satisfy unreasonable whims of southern white man. But it is charity and wisdom to keep in mind the two hundred years of schooling in prejudice against the Negro, which the ex-slaveholders are called on to conquer. A certain class of whites object to the general education of the colored man on the ground that when he is educated he ceased to do manual labor, and there is no avoiding the fact that much aid is withheld from Negro education in the South by the states on these grounds. Just here the great mission of industrial education, coupled with mental, comes in. It kills two birds with one stone viz it secures the cooperation of the whites and does the best possible thing for the black man unknown to me there were a large number of people present from alabama and some from my own home tuskegee these white people frankly told me afterward that they went to the meeting expecting to hear the south roundly abused but were pleasantly surprised to find that there was no word of adverse criticism in my address on the other hand, the South was given due credit for all the good things they had done toward aiding the Negro. A white lady, who was a teacher in a college in Tuskegee, wrote back to the local paper that she was pleased, as well as surprised, to note the credit which I gave the white people of Tuskegee for their aid in getting the school started. This address at Madison, Wisconsin, was the first that I had delivered, that, in any large measure, dealt with the general problem of the races. Those who heard their dress seemed to be pleased with what I said, and with the position I took. After this address I began receiving invitations from a good many portion of the country to deliver addresses on the subject of educating the Negro. At the present time, these applications have increased to such an extent, and they come in such large numbers, that if i were to try to answer even one-third of the calls that come to me from all parts of the united states as well as other countries to speak i would scarcely spend a single day at tuskegee end of chapter seven part two